And there is very much a sense that to be male, a human male, is to be godlike in a way that those who are not male, they, they can't be godlike in that way. It's about a visual bodily correspondence between this male god and human males. I think with the loss of the goddess, you know, monotheism, it's not a coincidence that monotheistic systems have a male deity at their centre rather than a female deity. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this episode of Mother Unearthed, where we explore the lost history of the feminine. On today's episode, we have the amazing Francesca Stavrakopoulou. Francesca is a professor of Hebrew Bible and ancient religion at the University of Exeter in the UK. She's the author of a number of books, including her most recent, God and Anatomy, which was awarded the Penn Hessel Tillman Prize for nonfiction. Francesca's worked in television and radio, making various programs on religion, archaeology, and the Bible, including a very popular BBC documentary series called Bible's Buried Secrets. We get into some juicy conversation with her, including why humans love stories, misrepresented goddess symbolism, sex and Christianity, and that the story of Adam and Eve, one of the most influential stories in Western culture, has had a devastating impact on our perception of women and nature. We love talking with Francesca and really appreciated her unique interpretation of the Hebrew Bible that's so completely her own. She's really brave to share it so publicly because it challenges the status quo on a deep level. We also thought it was intriguing to hear from a renowned biblical scholar who is also a self-identified atheist. Her unique insights truly elevate our understanding of these ancient texts. She's a trailblazer, and we hope you enjoy. I think we'll kind of just dive right into it. And one place we wanted to really start was storytelling and how important storytelling has been to humanity throughout our existence, right? It's how we learn from each other. It's how things get passed generation to generation. And I know in your work as a biblical scholar, you've done a lot of thinking about the primary religious stories that humans have told and shared. From your perspective, like what is the Bible? How do you describe that? <laughs> what, yeah. what even is it? Let's start there. <laughs> so basically, when we talk about the Bible in like Western cultures, we tend to, what we're referring to is the Christian Bible. And so the Christian Bible is, a collection, a very kind of diverse collection of ancient Jewish literature. The first half, I say half, I mean, it's like two thirds, is basically what Christians know as the Old Testament, but these are pre-Christian writings. So within Judaism, for example, they are known as Tanakh. What we tend to call in scholarship, we tend to refer to as the Hebrew Bible. So that's like the first collection of texts. And these texts were created over hundreds of years, drawing on lots of different traditions. And they became the texts that were particularly authoritative to early Jewish communities. And, you know, so by say the third century BCE, these were the texts that had become particularly religiously and sort of ideologically authoritative. Fast forward 300 years to the time of Jesus. And obviously Jesus was a Jewish guy. His first followers were Jewish. And the texts that they were reading, their scriptures were these ancient Jewish texts. So Christianity started off as a Jewish cult, essentially. So even the writings that we now find in the New Testament in the Christian Bible, they're written in Greek rather than Hebrew. Even though they're talking, making all these sorts of claims about who is Jesus, what's his relationship to the divine, 
They're still being produced by groups that are essentially still Jewish. They're a subsect of Judaism. Essentially, the New Testament writings a few hundred years later were put together with the Hebrew Bible writings, and they've now formed the Christian Bible as we know it. They're very different in lots of ways in terms of, you know, they're produced at very different periods of time. Like the New Testament texts were produced from the mid first century CE into the early second century CE. So these collection, this collection of texts as a whole, it's almost like an anthology or kind of like an ancient library of authoritative writings. And they differ massively quite often in terms of their preferences their kind of religious ideals. But they are the best collection of literature there is. I mean, the Bible has, you know, whether we believe it or not, the Bible has shaped our Western cultural ideas about everything from gender to to the notion of the divine to um, ideas of power and hierarchy. It's a major cultural icon still. Also an amazing mm-hmm. collection of ancient texts. Christianity has been such a powerful influence on, on culture, as you've said. And what do you think it is about some of the storytelling in the Bible that's been so important to humanity? Stories. Fact is, there are some really cracking good stories in the Bible, whether it's like Old Testament, Hebrew Bible or New Testament. In some ways, I mean, we create narratives. That's how we try to construct our understandings of reality by creating Mm -hmm. narratives, creating stories. And what a lot of the biblical texts do, and particularly what the Christian New Testament texts are doing, is trying to build on those much older, earlier stories that were found in the ancient Jewish scriptures. So, you know, there we've got almost like a narrative of the religious past that starts with just before creation and then moves all the way forward. And Christians are trying to kind of build their claims about who this Jesus guy is, why he's so significant, what his death and then, you know, what they imagine to be his resurrection means to not just their communities, but to future generations. And they're building, they're making a lot of those claims on the basis of saying that a lot of the things that Jesus said and did and happened to him were prophesied in these much older texts. Now, they weren't actually prophesied. It's a way of looking back at these ancient texts and sort of Mm -hmm. reinterpreting them in the light of their own kind of religious ticks and twitches and preferences but it's about creating a story it's about creating a narrative I mean we know what it's like right you're watching Netflix and it's like you get to the, it's the end of season one and you're like oh yay there's a season two brilliant I can kind of stay with the story for a while and it's almost like a similar sort of thing it's that it's about the continuation of stories and by telling these stories and adding to them we're also creating a much broader narrative in that connects us to the very mm-hmm. very distant past it connects us to a very very different ideas of who ancestors are identity what's important to us. And I think that's the real power of storytelling. And we really can do that, right? Like you can take whatever lens that you're coming from and what you're writing, you can you can kind of mold and mend stories in that way. I, I think humans are really good at like putting ourselves at the center of everything, like as individuals, as communities, as a species, you know, we are so kind of like focused on ourselves when navel gazers. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's exactly it. It's about putting ourselves at the heart of this kind of much bigger sort of eternal global story to a certain extent. And that's why these stories are attractive. I'm curious, the like proverbial they who wrote these stories in the New Testament, in the Bible, do you think that there was a a broader kind of agenda place? Do you think that there was a realization of how much these stories would shape culture or do you think that that just kind of happened in the sense that yeah I think it's different in all of these texts these texts are very different so Hebrew Bible texts are hugely diverse we've got things like love poetry and kind of prayers and prophecies and narratives and sort of ritual texts 
In the New Testament, they're slightly different. These texts are all about trying to either persuade communities, they're almost like propaganda. Who is this person, Jesus person? What does it do, what does it mean? So they're trying to persuade their polemical texts in a lot of ways. And they've been written in the context of the Roman Empire. And so they're also kind of, there's a certain kind of resistance to these imperial forms of power that people were under. Did the New Testament writers know that they were writing texts that would become so important? No, that was basically down to a series of flukes and luck and the fact that, you know, one of the Roman emperors 400, 500 years later decided to convert to Christianity. And then the whole kind of Roman Empire took up this new fangled god. Christian God. That's what gave the real impetus to Christianity, both in the West and then in the East too. But yeah, in terms of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament stuff, they are, they again are writing for very particular communities. And those communities tend to be elite, high status, politically invested groups who are similarly contending with a really difficult imperial context. I mean, this we're talking about a group of people, say these elites based in Jerusalem, who have undergone kind of imperial subjugation by first the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks. And so it's all about crafting their identity in the face of some really difficult circumstances, particularly when some of them have been displaced from their land in, in Judah, around Jerusalem, and they're in places like, you know, what we now know as Iraq, or they're in mm-hmm. you know, Egypt. So it's about kind of creating a sense of identity. We are who we are. We're we are this particular people with these particular ancestral and territorial stories to tell. And these stories remain important to us because that's our heritage. In some ways, these texts have all been designed to persuade different communities in some way. But I don't think any of these ancient writers could have imagined that this collection of texts would have become quite so globally important. Francesca, one of the things that I've heard you talk about is how Bible stories have been edited over time. Could you speak to that a little bit, specifically in the Old Testament, how people might have changed or modified the stories to fit their agenda? A good example is some of the stories that we find in Genesis about the so-called patriarchs, so the kind of the great ancestors of the ancient Israelites, so Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Some of these stories contain references to these great ancestors doing things like building altars in the honour of gods that are known as Ale. And the word Ale is a Semitic term that kind of means deity, but is also the proper name of particular deity, basically the father of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is known as Yahweh, but the God Ale seems to have been the high God, a very ancient, widespread deity. And you can see places in the texts where you've got these references to a particular God called El Shaddai, and this is the deity that has this kind of um, personal relationship with Abraham and it's El Shaddai that says, you know, I need you to instigate circumcision. I want to make a covenant with you. And then it's the same God that is revealed to Moses later on. And when he meets Moses in the burning bush, God says, you know, you, your ancestors knew me by the name El Shaddai. They didn't know me by the name Yahweh, but I'm telling you, it's the same God. And you're kind of like, it's not the same. These were separate deities originally. And what the biblical writers are doing are trying to kind of, they're spinning it to say, yeah, okay, El Shaddai was a separate deity originally from Yahweh, but we now identify this as being the same deity. And you can see these kinds of little clues in the text, like it's this kind of awkward, almost like an awkward kind of phrasing or a a slightly different term that's being used. And it looks like, okay, this is an addition. This is a later gloss that's trying to smooth and harmonize these stories to better suit the more monotheistic agendas of later biblical 
writers, redactors and compilers. So you do get some clear examples there of trying to harmonize the past with quite a different present. Yeah, I think that's a great moment to transition to one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about, which was the editing of the goddess out of the Bible. Could you speak to the history there of like perhaps why she might have been edited out the consort of Yahweh? We have Hebrew inscriptions dated to about the 8th century BCE. So around the time that some of this earliest biblical material was probably being produced. And these inscriptions refer to Yahweh and Asherah. And we know that Asherah was the name, the Hebrew name of a really important and very ancient goddess. So across the Levant, so the area that we identify with today with modern day Israel, the occupied Palestinian territories, Lebanon, etc., Jordan. And we know that she was a really important goddess. And in older cultures in this region, she was the wife of this god Ael, the high god. But it looks like gradually as Yahweh as a deity became a more prominent member of an original ancient Israelite pantheon. So he kind of tended to eclipse. He took on the roles and titles and cult places of the father god, Ale, And it looks like he also kind of took on the traditional consort of this god. So Asherah became the consort of Yahweh within ancient Israelite culture. But when you read the Hebrew Bible, we find Asherah's name all over it. I mean, over 40 times like Asherah is mentioned. But her name appears both as the proper name of a goddess, but also as the name of a ritual object that was probably a sacred tree. But every reference to her, almost every reference to her in the Hebrew Bible is very negative. So Israelites are absolutely condemned. Do not go off and worship, you know, do not construct an Asherah, a sacred tree. You know, this nasty king, Manasseh, he put a statue of the goddess Asherah in the temple of Yahweh. Now, this is obviously the place where you would have a statue of the goddess Asherah in the temple of Yahweh with her consort. But it's been twisted. It's been kind of vilified. So it reflects when these texts were being redacted and sort of reworked by the point that they were being reshaped, the goddess had fallen out of favour because essentially this ancient Israelite pantheon, which had a male and female deity at its head, was gradually being downsized um, and reworked. I mean, some people call it the emergence of monotheism, so a shift from polytheistic, the worship of many deities to just one. But really, it's about pantheon reduction. Yahweh gradually takes on all the roles of the other gods and goddesses in the heavenly realm. And Asherah is one of those who basically not only kind of loses her job in the heavenly world, gets demoted, but she's kind of vilified. And so she becomes this she becomes this symbol of religious deviancy. And it's a real shame because we know that Israelites were worshipping Asherah. It was completely normal, like every other ancient community in ancient Southwest Asia at the time. You, you worshipped a number of deities and, and the worship of the goddess was such an important part of these cultures. And yet she's been vilified and, and almost erased, if you like, from the biblical version of the religious past. And what do you think are some of the consequences of that removal and omission of the feminine in these narratives, knowing how widespread and important they eventually became? I think it's had hugely damaging in some ways it's, it's been hugely damaging i think because the god that you know yahweh himself doesn't lose his you know he is as gendered as the goddess was you know this is a very masculine deity and this is not just a masculine deity this is a very alpha male deity and so you get left with the idea without the goddess that somehow maleness masculinity is somehow a divine trait and there is no sense of femininity or the feminine within the heavenly realm and more importantly, you kind of get these texts, you know, as, as we'll kind of, I'm sure, talk about, 
like in Genesis chapter one, where we're told that, you know, man was made in the image of God. And there is very much a sense that to be male, a human male, is to have something to be godlike in a way that those who are not male, they, they can't be godlike in that way. Um, it's about a visual bodily correspondence between this male God and human males. And so I think with the loss of the goddess, you know, monotheism, you know, it's not a coincidence that monotheistic systems have a male deity at their centre rather than a female deity, because these texts, these traditions, these the power brokers were men, and these texts were written by men, for men, and they're about men, and they have made, they've constructed, they've made their image of God in the image of themselves. And so the impact has been devastating because it's these very same texts that for centuries since have been used to construct hierarchies of gendered power. And in that hierarchy, it's the male and the masculine that's at the apex. And those that are not male or masculine are are lesser. So yeah, it's it's been devastating, I think. I wanted to bring up an example from your recent book, God and Anatomy, that really struck Lindsay and I, because this podcast, of course, is about the lost history of the feminine and perhaps how the history of the feminine has been twisted because it's interpreted through certain cultures or certain eyes. And one of the images in your book that we found really interesting was a terracotta plaque figurine of the goddess from 1250 BC. And I just wanted to read what you wrote about it in your book, which was, she was a divine revealer of the secrets of new life whose open labia manifested a powerful liminality, the inside-outside entrance and exit place at which sexual potency, fecundity, and birth were located, but in Jerusalem's Israel Museum, her open labia signals that she's little more than a commodified sex object. The figurine may represent Asherah, the sacred prostitute, reads the post the notice position next to her in the display case. It is a shocking and misleading caricature grounded in a centuries-old biblically-derived hostility towards the goddess once venerated as the traditional consort of Yahweh, the god of the Bible. I just want to point out that she has two babies at her breast, the symbol of the sacred tree on her thighs, and then she's holding her labia open. Curious if you could comment with that as an example, just how we're seeing these symbols through our culture today versus how it might have been originally seen. So this little, she she is my favorite artifact. So the tattoos that she has on her thighs, I I, I only have one tattoo and I got it on my no wrist way. So in oh, Jerusalem wow. because I was like, I'm, cool. I need this goddess with me. You um, got it in Jerusalem? Yeah, yeah. In the oldest tattoo wow. parlor in the world, that tattoo place has been there for like over 400 years, like tattooing normally Christian pilgrims and stuff. And I just went in. I was like, hi, <laughs> this is what I want. <laughs> That's incredible. You know, like, you tell them? That. Yeah, I explained. Give me this guy. Yeah, exactly. Pattern. I explained it to him. And he said, I've never <laughs> seen that before. That's amazing. And, and you know, because normally when people go to Jerusalem, there's a thing called the Messiah syndrome, where kind of quite often Christian or Jewish people that are so kind of overwhelmed at being in this holy, sacred city that they kind of start to, you know, they basically have these sort of alternate experiences of who they are. And they start to believe that are they 
the Messiah come again. And whereas for me, you know, I'm a hardcore atheist, always have been, always will be. But for me, I was in Jerusalem, I was like, oh, I need the goddess. I need the goddess to be tattooed yeah. on me. <laughs> but yeah, this artifact is, she's incredible. And she's one, you, these were very common sorts of artifacts, these kind of front pose, nude um, figurines of powerful high status women and sometimes they we, we can't tell whether this is meant to represent a goddess or not but sometimes it very clearly does represent a goddess and this is one example and yeah she has these kind of twin babies positioned at her breast she's holding open her labia she seems to have as you say these sacred tree motifs um tattooed or stenciled on her thighs and this would have been a really powerful object this is like it's only small it's very cheaply produced out of clay and it would have been the clay would have been sort of the wet clay would have been pressed into a mold and then taken out and and dried and so lots basically these things were being produced a lot and they were seem to have been almost like powerful objects that looked that were more not necessarily bound up with it wasn't just women that were using these things or girls it wasn't just about childbirth or fertility it was about well-being it was about protection it was about these sorts of objects attracted if you like the good things in the cosmos into into the household and obviously, you know, the men in the household as well as, and the animals in the household as well as the female members. Um, but because of the way in which both goddesses and female sexuality is so vilified and sort of derided in biblical traditions and in subsequent, particularly Christian interpretation, it's almost like you get this stuff kind of regurgitated by even museum curators who say, oh, well, Asherah, yeah, she, this is probably Asherah, this this figurine. Um, yeah, she was basically uh, this kind of whore goddess, that she was a goddess who, you know, when the biblical texts literally say, do not whore after Asherah, they took that, that's using a, a sexual, it's casting religious de- deviancy as sexual infidelity. You're meant to, because you're being unfaithful to Yahweh if you worship these foreign gods. And so the Israel Museum curators there were kind of regurgitating this kind of biblical polemic that basically said, and it's a very old-fashioned idea that scholars, you know, kind of like 50 years ago had the idea that, oh, yes, goddess worship, this goddess, it was all about sex cults. They'd have orgies under trees outside to try and kind of stimulate the earth to kind of be more productive and fertile. I mean, it's bollocks. It's just, that's not just how it works. And it's this really, I think it's this really disappointing way of looking at cultures that are so different from our own and just assuming that somehow they're primitive or simplistic or superstitious. These are highly sophisticated ancient cultures. That's not the way they saw these things at all. It simply reflects the importance of this kind of feminine, the feminine, the embodied feminine, if you like, and the kind of that she was like women in particular held this role, both human and divine about, they were the mediators of life and death. You know, it's women's networks that produced, helped, you know, bring children and they breastfed each other's children. Um, you know, they, they birthed children, they were midwives, but they were also the ones that paid, played a particular role in helping the dead into the afterlife. They prepared bodies, they, you know, they, they worked with bones and, and so it's women, are, it mm-hmm. reflects that very powerful role that women had in ancient societies in mediating between life and death. And I think that's what the Revadim Plark figurine is trying to show. Yeah. And it's this kind of unabashed, you know, the body wasn't sexualized. The breasts and the labia weren't kind of sexualized in the same way that, that you know, that we would kind of almost view this as almost pornographic. 
But our whole construct of what is pornographic is based on this vilification of our own sex organs, derived very much from sort of early Christian hostility towards sex and sexuality. And and so this is just mm-hmm. a glorious artifact. And yet it's it's been kind of completely misrepresented by saying, oh yeah, Asherah, she was a she was a goddess of prostitution. She was a cult prostitute. There's no evidence of that at all in our sources. Yeah, fascinating. And it really hits that point home of like the lens in which we look at something impacts it so yeah. greatly. Another story we wanted to spend some time on with you that's arguably one of the most influential stories of all time is the story of Mm. Adam and Eve, which I know you've done a lot of writing on and and thinking on. I mean, for those who maybe aren't familiar or need a refresher, could you start with a synopsis of what is this story of Adam and Eve and we can dive Yeah, so we have this story in Genesis chapters two and three, God planting a garden. Um, so, and this is a very anthropomorphic view of God. Like God is kind of like this cultivator, this, you know, he uses his hands, he's got a body, da, da, da. He plants this garden and he then shapes, he's like a clay shaper. He then shapes this kind of male form, figurine, basically, from the clay and he breathes into this figurine, the breath of life. And then this is the first man. Adam is the Hebrew word for man, Adam. And he says to Adam, okay, your job is to look after this beautiful garden for me. So Adam is made, he's basically the first kind of cosmic gardener. That's his role. So it's all about cultivated fertility, not random fertility, cultivated fertility. And that kind of fertility only comes about by means of a particular kind of wisdom that the gods possess traditionally. They are the ones that can cultivate things. They they are ones that produce culture basically. So Adam's made and then Adam's like, I mean, obviously I'm paraphrasing quite a lot here. Adam's like, I'm a bit lonely. (laughs) And the man says, and Mm -hmm. God says, it's not good that Adam is on his own. You know, he needs some kind of companion to undertake the work that he's doing. And so then God like creates all the animals. And it's almost like, I always have that image in my head of, you know, like magicians that make balloon animals. It's like God kind of goes, here's a giraffe. And Adam's like, I don't want that to be my partner. And he's like, here's a zebra. No, I don't want that. So he's kind of like, no, not that one, not that one, not that one. You know, I don't fancy that, basically. I don't want to have a sexual relationship with that. No, no, no. (laughs) And so then finally, God's like, oh, okay. So he puts Adam into a deep sleep and he modifies Adam's body in such a way as to take a part of Adam. Now, in traditional translations, it's his one of his ribs but the word just basically means like side so he takes this part of adam closes up the hole that's left behind with a little bit of clay flesh or fleshy clay and then creates this woman from adam's part a body part of adam and that's one of the most important differences you've got adam is made from clay and divine breath but woman is made from man which is problematic in lots of ways so then you have this couple and god says to them There are lots of trees in the garden, fruiting fruit trees. You can eat from any tree in the garden except the tree that's in the middle of the garden. Okay, fine, we'll do that. So, you know, very famously, a serpent comes along. Now, normally in translations, it says that the serpent was very crafty or, you know, and it's kind of, it's like a negative, but the word is basically, he's very canny. He's very wise, very clever. This is a clever serpent. And he comes along and says to Eve, so God said that you can't eat from this tree. And she's like, oh yeah, that's absolutely fine. We can eat from any of the trees, but just not that one. And he says, God's only told you that because he knows that if you eat from this tree, your eyes will be opened. It's a very particular kind of phrase. It's almost like a kind of having a, not just realization, but this kind of otherworldly sense of perception. 
your eyes will be opened mm-hmm. and you will become like gods or like God, or you will become divine. The, the Hebrew there can mean all three of those things, but you will become like God or you'll become divine, knowing good and bad or good and evil, which is a way of saying knowing all things. So then we're told, and the woman looks at the tree. She's like, she sees it's very beautiful. She sees that it would be good. It would taste nice. And she knows that it will open her eyes. And so her and her husband together, they're together. They take from the tree and they eat. And then their eyes are opened and they suddenly see their bodies in a new way. And they think, oh, we need to cover our bodies. We need to modify our bodies. And they cover their bodies. Yahweh then walks along and he's like, and it's a really lovely description. It talks about him like walking in the Garden of Eden. It's kind of like at the end of the day in the in the evening breeze. It's like he's having a stroll at the end of the day. And he's like, Adam, Adam, dudes, where are you? So you're like, God doesn't know where anybody is. Where are you? Adam's hiding, obviously. And he said, I hid myself because I'm embarrassed because I'm I'm naked. And so then God realizes that they've eaten from the tree. He makes them clothes of leather with his own hands, sort of hand-stitched leather. Yahweh's a great craftsman. And then he says, well, you have screwed up completely. And so he throws them out. He expels them from the garden. He says, you've disobeyed what what I said. I know you've eaten from the tree. So you've been disobedient. So he expels them from the garden and then curses them. And Adam's curse is that rather than being the, the cultivator, the gardener of this space, he is now outside of the garden and he has to scratch a living from difficult dry soil and the woman's curse seems to evolve that she will have this constant sexual hunger for her husband and as a result she's going to keep getting pregnant and so and the serpent is cursed and the serpent is cursed he's told you're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to be eating dust as you go spitting out dust as you go so all three players are punished they're kind of um but adam and eve are expelled from the garden and so that's how basically humans get into the more familiar world as opposed to this kind of divine space so that's the story one thing that you said that struck me is that they were together when they ate the fruit but yeah in some versions of the story is it eve that tempts adam this is the thing so it's it's when you read the text carefully we're led to believe that the serpent talks to eve eve's like eats the fruit, and then basically says, Adam, you've got to eat this. This is amazing. But when we're told that they eat the fruit, we're very t- we're told very clearly, and they took from the tree the woman and her husband was with her. Her her man was with her. So they do it together. They're both as culpable. Mm-hmm. It's just that the serpent is the one that's talking to Eve. The problem with that, obviously, is that this story has been reinterpreted in numerous ways. And one of the most dominant ways that it's been reinterpreted within Christianity is that it's become, you know, the fall. They don't fall from anywhere. They don't fall from heaven. They're simply expelled from the garden. Like later on, their descendants are going to be expelled from Jerusalem under the Babylonians. You know, it's that same, it's that same motif of being displaced. But in Christian tradition, particularly under Augustine in the fifth century CE, kind of a nasty piece of work, St. Augustine, he basically was this reformed womanizer. He basically like (laughs) shagged his way around (laughs) North Africa and then sort of had this kind of conversion. I've done a terrible thing and then spent the rest of his like, you know, life agonizing about the kind of the lusts that that he felt and he wrestled with. What he does with this story, he's trying to say that there was a reason that Christ had to come. And the reason is that because Christ had to get rid of the sin of Adam and Eve. And he basically reinterprets the Garden of Eden story to basically cast Eve as the temptress. She is her fault. She gave the fruit to Adam. And when they realized they were naked, by this point, Christianity um, 
has has been very hostile to human sex, like just the idea of sex for a long time. Um, and we can talk about the reasons why that is in a minute. But he says that kind of this idea about that they're suddenly realizing they're naked suddenly means that that's when sex and sexual lust, dangerous sexual lust came into the world. And that this sin, this kind of inclination towards deviancy, towards sinfulness, any kind of sinfulness, is basically inherited like a sexually transmitted disease. He uses the word semen to talk about it. It is inherited from every generation since Adam and Eve. That's why all humans have it. It's an STD basically. And that what's, that's what renders us sinful. And so the reason that Christ had to come into the world was to basically cancel out the sinful nature of humanity. He became he becomes the second Adam, as St. Paul calls Christ quite often in his writings. So Augustine uses all this to basically say, sex is bad. Women are the reason that sin entered the world. They're the reason they are sexually abhorrent. Um, they're very dangerous. It's all a woman's fault. Another piece of the story that I didn't hear you mention that I read in my the version of the Catholic Bible that I was given as a kid is the part where God tells Eve that she's going to suffer. I don't remember the exact wording, but she's going to suffer in childbirth from here yeah. on out. Where does that part come in? So yeah, that's at the end. Of, that's in the curses. So he curses all three at the end. So the man is cursed with having to scratch a living from unyielding soil. The woman is cursed for having this sexual appetite for her husband, but also, which means that she will have a lot of pregnancies. And when we read the Hebrew, it's quite ambiguous. You can read it to say, and you will have pain in childbirth as a result of your sin, or it means you will have, you know, you will have a lot of pregnancies. And so therefore you're going to be in a lot of pain. So in other words, is it that originally childbirth wasn't painful until this curse from God, or is it that childbirth itself is the curse? You can read it in both ways. But yeah, that's where it comes in the kind of the curses at the end of Genesis 3. And the reason they're thrown out of the Mm -hmm. garden is that Yahweh says, They've already eaten from this tree of the knowledge of good and bad, but we need to throw them out of the garden because they've been disobedient. But now they have this wisdom, this knowledge. They now might reach from this other tree called the tree of life. And if they eat from that tree, they will become, they will live forever and become like gods. So it's like there's two kinds of, it's almost playing on those two ideas of what is it that makes some, what what is it that, what does the God have that humans don't? It's wisdom and immortality. And so humans have already managed to get wisdom, mm. but then God throws them out of the garden quickly before they can gain immortality as well. Yeah, this is all fascinating. And <laughs> I know in your BBC documentary series, Bibles Buried Secrets, you shared that this story has helped shape the belief that human nature mm. is fundamentally yeah. bad, which I think is also fascinating, right? It, it almost like to me brings up things of like, you know, this could be used in a lot of what you're saying in ways to just control people, control the population, control thinking. I'm curious if you wanted to speak more to that point as well, because I thought it was particularly interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I think sometimes it's quite common to kind of, I mean, we know that religion and kind of doctrines and theological views can be used as a means of trying to disempower certain groups or trying to kind of keep control for an elite group or whatever. I I don't think that's quite the way it necessarily works. I think this idea that Mm -hmm. particularly within Christianity, that human nature is essentially 
bad is essentially flawed. It's very much based on this interpretation, particular interpretation of original sin that's been kind of retrojected back onto the biblical text. That's not what the story is about at all. It's about disobedience. It's not about some kind of fundamental human flaw in that sense. But I think within in early Christianity, the very first Christians, they basically believed that the world as they knew it was about to end. That's what they thought. They thought that that Jesus had died, Jesus had resurrected, he had ascended back to heaven and was about to come back with, in some versions, this kind of heavenly army that was going to overthrow all earthly kingdoms and empires. And this new kingdom of God would be established and it would be like being in heaven. It was, it was going to change the whole cosmos. And because of that, they thought that sex itself was pointless. There's no point in having sex because sex would be redundant in heaven because everyone's going to be living forever. So you don't need to procreate to kind of for humans to continue to exist. Mm. And so this is very kind of antagonistic portrayal of sexual relationships and even marriage in a lot of New Testament texts, which basically you don't need to have sex you know, stop having children because the world is literally about to end. That's it. Stop. We don't need any more generations. This is something huge is about to happen. Um, But obviously Jesus didn't come back. And so kind of people had to adjust their expectations and their and their kind of assumptions. And obviously people didn't stop having sex either in the first generations of Christianity. Otherwise, you know, they would have died out. Christianity became more accommodating to sex, but it didn't lose its sense that somehow sex was a marker of mortality we die and so you have children it's the next generation that kind of perpetuate your existence if you like they're the ones that remember you and then they die and it's their children because in this heavenly kingdom that christians thought was going to come that no one's going to die you're going to live forever even those who are dead are going to resurrect and live forever and so there's this sense somehow that sex was just a marker of this kind of state of being this cosmic state of being this and the place that humans occupied within that kind of cosmic framework that was about to be overturned anyway. So it's a marker of being human. And what was going to happen is that we were going to be somehow transformed. But there's a lot of hang-ups about sex in, you know, in biblical texts and in um, like later Christian and Jewish theologies that have had huge ramifications, I think, for us. You know, we kind of see the genitals as a result primarily of people like Augustine in the fifth century CE saying that somehow kind of imagine that genitals are somehow dirty or dangerous or that's Mm. not necessarily how sex was understood. I mean, the other big thing as well is that by this point, Jewish and Christian people thought that God didn't have a body and that God was didn't have sex. But when these traditions were first emerging, the gods were had human like bodies, they had sexual organs, they had sex, they were sexual beings. But by the time you get to kind of the earliest Christianity, the idea of the divine somehow of God being somehow sexually active was really problematic because it's almost like that gap between what it is to be human and what it is to be a God has kind of stretched further and further and further away, which is why you need some kind of cosmic intervention by God to completely change the way the world has been. It's like a second creation, basically, and everyone's going to live forever. Can you speak a little bit to the way we understand how Eve's story has affected our view of women and also of female sexuality. It's interesting because Jewish tradition sometimes goes in a different direction from Christian tradition in looking at some of these stories. So within Jewish tradition, there's a story that Eve was the second wife of Adam. He already had a wife before, um, Lilith. 
I mean, the name Lilith is basically the name of a much, much, much older Mesopotamian deity who was a real troublemaker. And she is the kind of, she was the deity who was responsible for child death, basically. So cot deaths, stillbirths, that kind of thing. This was the this is the fault of Lilith. But by the time, you know, fast forward into the kind of early medieval period, and by this point, there's Jewish traditions that say that Lilith was the first wife of Adam. And but she left Adam, she abandoned the marriage because she said to Adam, they were having, you know, having sex. And she said, I want to go on top. Why are you always on top? I should go on top. We're created equal at the same time. And Adam's like, no, and she and she's insisting that she is of equal status and value as Adam. And he refuses to let her go on top during sex. And so she's like, screw this. And she like is abandons this in the, the marriage. Hebrew Bible. That's not in the Hebrew Bible, it's in later Jewish traditions. But the reason why the Lilith story is interesting, so like she Lilith abandons the marriage in this later Jewish interpretation of the story. And it's then that Yahweh then creates Eve. And this is creating. I think that's why they interpret her as being created from Adam rather than being made in the same way as a man. She's made in a completely different way. And I think it's because, and it's this emphasis on the wife, there is something inherently disobedient about women. So Lilith was disobedient because she was insisting that she was equal to her husband. I mean, that's a view that very much sits, it sits very comfortably with us today as as modern women. Didn't sit so comfortably Mm -hmm. with people (laughs) in the last like two and a half thousand years eve becomes this kind of cipher of disobedience she is the one that the serpent talked to she is the one that was targeted by the serpent so does that mean there is some inherent weakness or vulnerability or gullibility in women um that they would listen to this serpent rather than you know being obedient to god a male and to her husband another male whereas in christian tradition as i've said it's very much this idea that somehow women it was all women's fault that humanity suddenly realized that this their childlike nudity that we were initially created in was somehow problematic and it's because of sex that it's women that by eating by eve eating from this tree she introduced you know they suddenly re- they suddenly become ashamed and embarrassed of their bodies so they lose their childlike innocence and so for a lot of christian theologians that's Eve's fault that we lost our childlike innocence, like, you know, frolicking about, you know, like happy naked kids in God's garden. All of a sudden, we suddenly become aware of the sexuality of our sexual organs. And that's Eve's fault. Then we start having sex. That's Eve's fault. Sex is therefore bad because it got us kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So it's this demonization of um female like human sexuality but it's very much freighted as it is the fault of women and it's by birth by having sex and then women giving birth that this original sin is transferred down every generation as i said it's a congenitally inherited disease theologically it's an sti and so it's just women become they are kind of less than men they are deviant form of humanity And they are a danger, therefore, to all these men who are trying so hard to be faithful to almost their rightful partner, God. It's kind of psychologically, it kind of reveals quite a lot about the men that are writing these texts. You know, we've seen a lot of the the consequences of this and women and hundreds of thousands of years to, to follow. And then like another consequence of the disobedience was they were you know, expelled from 
the garden expelled from this paradise. Do you think that's also affected our relationship with nature? Yeah, hugely. I think, I mean, I think there's lots of things to say about that, but in, in, so we have the idea of expulsion that so, somehow they stop being the caretakers of the natural world and suddenly the natural world becomes something that is hostile to humans. It is resistant to human care and cultivation. But even before the Genesis, um, the Garden of Eden story in Genesis 2 and 3, you have Genesis 1, which is a slightly separate creation story. That's the story where God creates the world in six days and then has the seventh day off for a rest. And in that story when he creates humans and he creates the man and the woman at the same time in that story, he also blesses them with fertility. You need to populate the earth. And he also says you must subdue the earth and all the other animals that that are in the earth. And it's that, and it is about dominion, subjugation. Um, It's very royal language that's used. It's like that kind of imperial sort of trampling down. And those texts are the very texts that have also underscored particularly Christian later Christian empires, the European Christian empires, where they people went out and they plundered not just other people and enslaved huge numbers of other people, but they plundered and enslaved the earth and its resources. And it's, it results in things like, you know, the commodification of animals for food. Um, it's just, so there's a, you can trace a line, a, a direct line of connection between the environmental emergency that we're in today some of these and the interpretation of these texts that render humans somehow not just the superior animal but they are to act like god on earth and they are to suppress disorder and they are to cultivate and just basically they are the rulers of of the earthly realm and and that their lives eclipse all other kinds of life in the earthly realm which is horrific (laughs) it's horrific (laughs) and <laughs> um, you know god creates all the other animals like you know and and in the in those genesis stories as well the point is is that the breath of life is in humans the divine breath of life is in humans but it's also in non-human animals too so the thing that makes us special and has this gives us this connection with the divine is also the thing that that gives this connection to the divine with animals and yet that in in kind of later interpretation that all gets forgotten and ignored and there's a there's a kindred you know, blood itself is kind of the life force of, of these created beings in these stories in Genesis. And animals and humans have the same life force, the same blood in them. So blood also almost becomes this kinship substance between animals and humans. And, you know, and humans are told, you know, yes, you can eat animals, but don't spill their blood. Don't kind of eat their blood. You know, think about the ways that you're not just slaughtering them, that you are dispatching a life in a particular kind of way, which is why you know, within Islam and Judaism, for example, like the way that you slaughter an animal for meat is so important because it's about a reverence for that animal's life rather than the kind of mass-produced, commodified animal lives that are slaughtered in secular contexts. And we just see them packaged in plastic in supermarkets. I mean, it's just, we're removed completely from the sanctity of, of animal life. Do you think we'll ever see new powerful stories emerge or are we too far gone at this point? I think it's interesting that, you know, there's a whole debate at the moment, isn't there, about the dangers of AI and, you know, can AI become and create and trigger new religions? I suspect it probably can because it's so much about if we if we're no longer able to judge what is our reality, our truth 
and and all of those things are quite constructed, obviously, but our reality, our truth, then, you know, what does that, could it really be that, you know, AI can become more powerful than humans? And if so, what does that do to us and to our ways of managing and responding that kind of AI superiority? But then on the other hand, you know, because of our technological advances, I say advances, I don't think it's too great to advance too much in some ways technologically, but what happens? What about, how is it going to change? If we find life on other planets, for example, I mean, we can't be the only living things in the universe. That's, you know, who knows? I'm not talking about little green men, but you know, it's, it seems likely that there is life elsewhere. So then how does that change our, our human centric sense of ourselves in terms of the religions that we have? Our religions are all about humans are the most important things you know you have so what how how is christianity going to recast itself well what's god's relationship with those living beings and you know did they have their own kind of revelation of god or christ or whatever um so i think in that sense i think we certainly have the capacity for the generation of incredibly interesting new stories um about origins and the otherworldly and what it is that we mean by divine but yeah uh, so I think yeah I don't think we ever stop telling stories and stop reinventing stories there's always new Mm -hmm. things to say absolutely and it will be fascinating to see what comes of that and I think AI is such an intriguing example right so one one last area we wanted to spend some time with you on while we have you Francesca is a lot of the misrepresented symbolism beyond even the story of Adam and Eve, just in general around female symbolism. We touched on that a little bit with the the figurine you highlighted in your, in your book. One symbol, for example, is the serpent that's often associated with femininity and the divine feminine. How do you think the serpent has been misrepresented in religious interpretations or what is really the true meaning of the serpent Mm -hmm. based on your knowledge there's never a true meaning like uh, like all of these symbols are multivalent like a sacred tree often represents a goddess very good point often can represent lots of other things it can represent a holy site or whatever um and serpent symbol is is exactly the same thing it's multivalent i mean we do see in in the cultures that gave rise to the biblical texts we do see a tendency to associate in some of those cultures the serpent with kind of immortality, but also but primarily, and you know, that kind of makes sense. Serpents shed their skin, they kind of carry toxins in their bodies and yet are not affected by these toxins. You know, so you can kind of see how some of these ideas come about. But more often than not, the, the serpent is primarily a guardian. And I think that's what's interesting. Like, even if we think about the Adam and Eve story. The serpent there, we're told that his punishment is that he's going to have to crawl on his belly and eat dust. And everyone kind of says, oh, this is because serpents were probably more like lizards. And God says, right, you're going to lose your legs and you're going to have to crawl on your belly. But that's probably not the case in the minds of the, in the cultures that these texts emerged within. What we find throughout the Hebrew Bible, and we've got lots of kind of iconography that reflects this across the region, is that the serpent is probably best understood as almost like a guardian of the garden or a guardian of the deity or even a guardian of the tree. And he would have been a winged, fiery serpent. This 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 serpent had wings. And so when he's punished at the end by saying, you shall crawl on your belly, 
he's not losing his legs. He's been stripped of his wings. That's why he's kind of crawling on his belly. And so, but the serpent is as a what is a seraph basically. So, you know, you've heard of the seraphim, like cherubim and seraphim. So the seraphim are a, a class of divine being in ancient Israelite religion and in the Hebrew Bible. We find them in Isaiah 6, for example, who accompany gods. They're kind of like guardians or kind of accompaniers of, of gods, including Yahweh. And they're winged, fiery serpents. And their job is basically they kind of act a little bit like, they, they yeah, they kind of guard boundaries and thresholds. So I think the serpent in Genesis is actually one of the seraphim, like one of these winged, divine, fiery serpents. Um, so he's basically a goodie, but he's almost been vilified, if you like, within this tradition. And then through later Jewish interpretation and then Christian reinterpretation. So the idea that he's somehow the devil is, is is not there in the text. In your BBC documentary, you talked about how perhaps the serpent was made into a negative symbol because someone in power was trying to suppress snake-worshipping cults. I see a parallel between that and then also how certain people in power were trying to perhaps suppress the story of the goddess as well. And then mm. it's curious to me that the tree... And the serpent are both sort of forbidden or negative symbols in the story of Adam and Eve. Can you speak about that? Yeah, I mean, there are some scholars who have argued that what we've got in the Garden of Eden story is basically started as a goddess myth. Because quite often in the iconography, so in the visual cultures of these societies, very often you have not just the naked female goddess figure, but also the sacred tree. And often sometimes she's holding two serpents or there's a serpent. So it may be that this kind of the very the seeds of this story, if you like, are drawing somehow on a much older goddess motif. It's, it's possible, but I think with the serpent, it's interesting because yeah, we have this story about Moses making God tells him to make a, a religious statue, a cult statue of a serpent, and people are to pray to it. And it's a seraph. It's like one of these burning, fiery, winged, heavenly serpents. They're to pray to it, and they'll be healed by the snake bites that they've already encountered. And then we're later told in, in the Hebrew Bible that that statue that Moses made was set up in the Jerusalem temple. And it's a part of this program of trying to kind of diminish the original pantheon. So getting rid of the goddess, but also getting rid of all the other divine beings. And this serpent god was probably a, a part of, he's called Nehushtan, was probably a part of this original pantheon. So yeah, he's been kind of, that serpent deity has been exorcised from this kind of new reinvention of Yahweh and exorcised from the Jerusalem temple, much as Asherah, the goddess, was too. So I think it's part and parcel of the move towards monotheism. So it's not necessarily that, oh, it's a serpent, therefore it's bad and it's dangerous and it's deviant, don't worship it. Nor necessarily, oh, it's a goddess, she's terrible, let's not worship her. Because we know that people carried on worshipping goddesses like alongside Yahweh for some time after this happened. But I think it's more about we need to make this God Yahweh so important that he cannot be threatened by or likened to any other deity. So it's almost like a prioritization of Yahweh and he gradually takes on the roles and functions mm. of other gods and goddesses and divine beings rather than we need to get rid of Asherah and the serpent deity because they're bad. I think it's about we just want to have one deity and one deity alone. And it's a shame, you know, I think mm. monotheism is kind of, it's one of those things like it kind of looks good in theory, but it's deeply problematic. Like it's, I, I'm much more attracted to, <laughs> to polytheistic. I mean, I'm an atheist, but if I were religious, 
I'd find a polytheistic system just much more workable, you know. They've all got their special portfolios of like, you know, I deal with kind of like fertility. I deal with, you know, what to do if you can't find your car. I deal with, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> they it's, have their specializations. Yeah. 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 Um, and it makes sense. Far that more they dynamic. Have, yeah. And it makes sense that they would have disagreements, you know, that makes much better sense of the universe that two gods have mm-hmm. a squabble or an argument. And, you know, so this bad thing happens, but then it, it kind of, it's more fun it, as well. More festivals, you know, more special <laughs> foods. I just, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting what you're, what you're sharing too about, you know, a lot of this may have been the prioritization of Yahweh because we see a lot of symbols that originally were empowering to the goddess get completely kind of turned around. And as as we've talked about a few times in this conversation, it's important to see how multifaceted different things are. But we see this with like Friday the 13th, which to my understanding was originally kind of a goddess day of worship and is now this unlucky kind of evil day. The word, the original meaning of the word witch, which was more of a a healer, a woman of power got vilified. And of course, even in our more recent history, we had like the witch trials and burning women at the stake. Mm. I'm just curious of all these symbols of women that have gotten misrepresented or twisted throughout history. Are there any other examples you're aware of or if you wanted to go deeper on? Oh my God, I mean, there there are so many. I mean, it's interesting that you, you, you talk about the witch because that's, I guess it takes us back to the beginning where we started, you know, women were these mediators between life and death. And I think, you know, and death wasn't just, you know, we tend to define death in our cultures. We've got these very medicalized cultures. We define death in terms of the combination of, you know, the irreversible shutting down of key body operating systems, the brain, the heart, you know, the lungs, whatever. But death is a social process. And in the ancient world, People continue to exist after their bodies had died and people continue to socialize with their dead ancestors. So one of my most, one of my favorite biblical characters is a woman who's often known as the witch of Endor. So she's in the book of Samuel and the story goes that Samuel is a great prophet. He dies and King Saul is missing his key prophet. He needs advice. And, you know, a a prophet's job is to offer divine commentary on what's going on in the here and now. They're kind of like, you know, like a president's kind of special advisor. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of thing, except they've got a hotline to the heavenly realm. But Saul has kind of expelled all the the specialists that deal in how to access divine otherworldly knowledge. And this includes, she's just called a Balat. She's a, she's a lady, a woman. Um, the translation witch that's used of her is, a, again, it's completely projecting onto the text. That word is not used in the text. But she's this woman who can conjure up the, I guess we would call it a ghost, but the social presence, the post-mortem social presence of Samuel. And she conjures him up and Saul can't see him when he comes up from the underworld, but she can. And he says, oh, what does he look like? And she says, oh, yeah, I see an old guy. And he's like wrapped in a cloak. He's like, yeah, yeah, that, that's Samuel. And, he, and Samuel is able to give this kind of prophecy, but only because this woman has the ritual power to be able to socialize with the dead. And it's amazing. It's it's incredible. And yet that story very quickly becomes another example of women are dangerous, women are bad, women perform black magic, women are witches. 
but there's none of that language that's used in that text. We see how effective, I mean, this is necromancy, basically, gaining secret knowledge from the dead. And she's a necromancer. And we see how effective that, that she is at that. And we see how that the ritual works, you know, like the king, King Saul gets the information from Yahweh, the prophecy via the ghost of Samuel that he needs. And yet it's one of those things that has been used to kind of terrify people about women, about our kind of skills, our, our, our roles, our ritual roles in bringing new life into the world and, and helping life move on to the next, whatever that may be. So I think it's really interesting that, that, yeah, that idea about what is a witch, it's very deep rooted, but it's very much based on this fear of women's ritual power is increasingly kind of marginalized and disenfranchised. In the same way, Mary Magdalene, people think of her as the prostitute. Nothing in the Bible says she's a prostitute. There is nothing about her sexuality, nothing. But she became really important in the history of the early Christian movement. She was in a lot of the, the texts that didn't end up in the New Testament, but, but were very important. She becomes almost like she is the kind of second in command to Jesus. And he's like giving her all this key information, this secret knowledge about what's going to happen next. Like, you know, he's already ascended to heaven, but when he's going to come back and what's going to happen. But because of this fear of this kind of very female centric Christian figure, male priests and the hierarchies and theologians, they basically start to say she's a whore. I mean, it's just the most awful, the most obvious way of vilifying this powerful female woman who was remembered within early communities as being somebody incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And instead we end up with 12 male disciples. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just a a way to dismiss these these very powerful contributions Mm. and... Absolutely fascinating, Francesca. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. I've learned a lot throughout this conversation. Um, Me too. So many things that we could go for a lot longer talking about. In closing, we we like to ask all our guests, um, what's a, a primary message you would want to leave our listeners and audience with? That's so hard. I mean, I guess to me, it's like for those people that aren't religious in that kind of traditional conventional sense, I would want to say, please don't think the Bible's boring. It is amazing. Read about it, learn about it, because it is the most fantastic collection of ancient literature. For those people that are religious, I'd like them to say, reread your Bible, because it doesn't say what you think it says. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like, seriously, it does not say what you think it says. But I do what I do. I study, uh, you know, I'm a professor in this. Because I think the human capacity to imagine the otherworldly is extraordinary. And I think that's what I find most fascinating about us as a species. Like, we just have this ability to imagine that we still have relationships with the dead, to imagine that, you know, there are these invisible, otherworldly, divine beings. Um, and isn't that amazing about about humans? So I think that's that's the kind of primary thing that I'm interested in. I hope that if other people are interested in that too, it's just to think about just how far the imagination can conjure new ways of being in the world and new realities and that no one person or one group's way of being in the world is any better than anybody else's. It's just different. That's all. Very well said. That was perfect. Where can our audience find more of you and any other upcoming documentaries or works that, that we can look out for? At the moment, I'm just about to start writing a new book. So I'm going to be 
hunkering down. But yeah, there's loads of my stuff on, just Google me. My name is very distinctive. Just Google me and you can find loads of my stuff on YouTube, like other TV shows and interviews and stuff. Um, and I'm on Twitter. I've tried Insta. I can't get on with Instagram. I never have enough interesting things to take photos of because I'm like, literally, I'm a, I'm a boring geek. I'm an academic. I just sit reading books and stuff. So yeah, find me on Twitter. It's, um, what am I? At Prof Francesca. And I'm usually saying something provocative or something on Twitter. So yeah, find me there. Love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us today. Such a pleasure to have you. And cheers. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.